welcome to episode 233 of Greater Than Code. I'm Damien Burke, and I'm joined here with Casey Watts. Hi, I'm Casey, and I'm here with our guest today, Jess Schmida. Jess is currently a senior leader at AWS in the EC2 networking organization. Previously, she was the first female CTO of a major media organization, Axios, and before that, the co-founder and CTO at Optoro, which helps top-tier retailers nationwide handle their returned and excess goods. Jess got her start in tech in the 90s, writing Perl to configure Solaris machines. Over the years, she's contributed to open source and organized a number of communities, these days focusing on the DC tech Slack and the DC-based Joy of Programming meetup. Outside of the tech world, Jess is a singer, songwriter, an improviser, a gamer, a proud member of the LGBTQ plus community, and a mom to the most wonderful Minecraft-obsessed six-year-old imaginable. Welcome, Jess. Welcome to Greater Than Code, Jess. Thank you. It's nice to be here. So I know I know someone has prepped you with our first question. What is your superpower and how did you acquire it? My superpower is that I can play any instrument you hand me. And Whoa. I... <laughs> I acquired it by being a giant nerd. <laughs> I went to a, a special music high school here in the D.C. area called Suitland High School, and uh, I played all kinds of different instruments. I was the principal bassoonist of the D.C. Youth Orchestra for a while. Uh, music's always been a lifelong love of mine, and it's been a mission to like find every strange instrument I can find and figure out how it works. So it's a challenge <laughs> to find something that I can't play. <laughs> Oh, I'm so tempted. Like, and, and of course, the first thing I would have gone with is, is the double reeds, bassoons, and oboe, but <laughs> that's too easy. That's uh, right. Banjo, of course, you got. Steel drum. Steel drum I've played, yeah. yeah. Cajon. <laughs> Cajon. Oh, I have heard of it. <laughs> I haven't actually touched one. I'll have to figure it out. <laughs> it, it's particularly easy. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I don't know very many people who play more than just an instrument or two. I think it might be like you and I are the two that come to mind for me, honestly. How do you, I have an instrument in every color, by the way. That's the way I collect them. Nice. Lately, I got a white accordion. But yeah, how do you feel like this breadth of instrument ability has affected your life in other ways? I don't know. You know, that's an interesting question. How has it affected my life in other ways? I mean, there's the obvious tie-in of music and technology. There's such an incredible confluence of musicians who are engineers and vice versa. I was actually talking to someone at the office earlier about that, and she was theorizing it's because all of the patterns and rhythms that we think about and how that ties into regular patterns and systems that we think about as engineers. And I think that's a really interesting way to think about it, for sure. I do think that there's a certain element of sort of cross-culturalism that you get from learning other cultures' instruments. Certainly, like, uh, the Berenbao, like, for um, the Brazilian martial art... <laughs> Capoeira, 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 yeah, yeah. So the the capoeira, um, the bear about the instrument that has like the long string, and you have like the little, little, like I think you learn a lot about sort of like what led to developing an instrument so relatively simple, but creating such an incredible art form uh, in the culture where people just wanted to dance and share sort of their heritage with each other and sort of picked up whatever they could find that would make interesting and fun sounds and created an entire culture around that. So I, I for me, it's as much cultural exp exploration and understanding as it is anything. I think it's wonderful. Yeah, that's really amazing. I, I had a tiny insight on this recently. I saw an amazing video about 
uh, Jimi Hendrix song with the basic premise being, what key is this song in? And it's a, it's a really difficult question. Uh, cause the, the, and I'm going to go a little bit music nerd here. The tonic is E sort of, but the chord progressions and the chord and the melodic signature doesn't really fit that. And amazing 20 minute video, but the, but the end conclusion is that using Western art music tonality to describe blues music, American, American blues music is a different tonality. So it doesn't really make sense to say what, what major key is this in or what minor key is this in. Yeah, totally. Yeah, like we were watching, a, my partner and I, this morning we were watching a video about Coltrane's like classic, my favorite things, uh, interpretation in the 60s, and uh, how he's basically playing between like these major and minor tonalities constantly. And it's not necessarily like tonal from the Western sense, but is certainly beautiful. And I think it's certainly approachable and understandable to any ear, regardless of how you decompose it. And uh, anyway, giant music nerd, sorry. <laughs> Yeah, but it, it ties so closely to what you were talking about as an instrument being cultural. The guitar, the five-string guitar, is tuned for American music, which is a slightly different tonality from Western European music. And so when you think, then you think about like, okay, well, that's very slightly different. Now, what's it, what is it like in Africa, in Australia, in Asia? Like, that's all. It's got to be very, oh, yeah. very different. <laughs> Yeah, I saw that this guy in Turkey, he's modified a guitar to add quarter tones to it because a lot of Turkish music uses quarter tones. And so it's just like the fretboard is wild. It has all of these like extra frets on it and he plays it. It's absolutely incredible, but it's it's wild. It's amazing. So I want to I want to tie this into different cultures and frameworks and technology. How about that? Yeah, you bet. Let's do it. Yeah, <laughs> so actually, segue. Way. That's something that's been on my mind is this uh, sort of Ruby community diaspora in a way. And I know Greater Than Code has a lot of Ruby folks on it, and I'm not sure about the latest incarnation, but definitely a lot of Ruby roots. And I think that we've seen this incredible mixing of culture in the Ruby community that I haven't seen in other places that drives this... uh, well, I think Mina Swan is, I think it's a really fantastic way to sum it up. Like, Mats is nice, and so we are nice. And, I mean, as much as that might be a justification to be nice, which, you know, be nice anyway, but it's still this ethos of, like, we are nice to each other. We care, and we that is baked into the community. And my journeys in other language communities, I think, haven't shared that perspective that it is good to be nice in general. And some of them even, I think, are focused on it's good to fight. (laughs) So I've been really curious about this movement as like Rubyists move into other, you know, language areas like Go and Rust and Elixir, et cetera, et cetera. Like how much of that carries forward and what really can we do to drive that? So, yeah. So my question is, how does a technological community, what is it about the community? What is it about the technology? Why is it different? You know, you and I both wrote Pearl in, in the 90s. And so that is a very different community. And I look at Ruby and I write mostly Ruby now. And I go, why Why is it different? What's different about it? Yeah, no, no, it's a good question. I, um, You know, a lot of the early conversation that I remember in the Ruby community was, and just contextually, I've been using Ruby since 2006 or so. So that era. A lot of the early conversation I remember was about Mott's developed the language to optimize for developer uh, happiness. And I think that's a really unique take. And I haven't heard of that in any other place. So I'm wondering how much that might have been like the beginnings of this. I don't know. 
something came up in a Twitter conversation I saw a while back where they compared Ruby and Pearl. I'm pretty sure it was Pearl. And that they, well, one of the defining features of Pearl was that there's more than one way to do it. And Ruby has that same ethos. Like there's literally in, in the standard lib, there's a lot of aliases and synonyms. It's like, you know, you call it pop or drop or, and I can't keep those straight. <laughs> but anyway, then I thought to myself, well, in Pearl, that's an absolute disaster. I pull up a, a profile and I'm like, I don't know what this is because I don't, I don't know what's going on. Whereas in Ruby, I've loved it so much. And so what's the difference? And the difference was, um, the difference to point out to me was that in Ruby, it was for expressiveness. Things have different names so that they can properly express, more better express the intention. And in Perl, yeah. well, that, that, that wasn't the case. Yeah, no, totally. I think actually looking at Ruby and Python, I think we're both heavily influenced by Perl. And I think Python definitely took the path of like, well, all of this like nonsense is just nonsense. Let's just have one way to do it. <laughs> uh, and, you know, having worked with some Python developers, I think that perspective on like there is one correct path really drives that community in a lot of ways. And I think some people find that releasing, really simplifying for them because they're like, I got it right. I know the answer. Like it's the math problem almost. As a Rubyist going into the Python community, I was like, oh, I'm so stifled. <laughs> Where is my expressiveness? I want to write like, you know, inject or, you know, oh, I can't even think of the opposite of inject now. <laughs> Collect. <laughs> Those are two different words for me. I want to be able to write eat both, you know, depending on what I'm doing. So, you know, it's also interesting. Like, I see a lot more DSL development in Ruby than I see in any other language. And maybe Elixir also. But uh, I think that also comes from the same perspective of, like, there is no, like, there's not one right way to do it. There's a best way for this problem. And there's a best way for this kind of communication you're trying to drive. And, you know, it's interesting, like, as I'm talking myself into a corner here, like, a bit, like, Ruby almost emphasizes the communication of code more than the solving of the problem. And I think that might actually help drive this community where we care about the other humans we're working with, because we're th always thinking about how we communicate with them in a way. I think about the term human-centered design a lot lately. And that's becoming more and more popular, like, term, a way to describe this thing. Uh, Ruby totally did that. Ruby looked at, like, how can we make this easy for humans to use and work with? And I think that's beautiful. I keep thinking about a paper I read a long time ago that a professor made up a uh, made-up programming language and, like, varied features of it, like white space matters or not, and a whole bunch of those, and, like, measured which ones were easier for new people to learn and which ones were harder for new people to learn. And as a teacher, I want to use whatever is easy for the students to learn so they can get their feet wet so they can start learning and building and doing things and get excited about it, and not get hung up on the syntax. And so human-centered design baked into Ruby is, I think, partly why the community is so human-centered. I think you're, you're exactly right. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, that's a large part of why the Joy of Programming meetup, I think, has been really fun, is we get to learn from how different language communities build things. And a lot of it, I think, was founded on that kind of thinking is like, you know, the, the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, for better or worse, theorizes language shapes thought. And I think that that is, to some degree at least, true in how we think about writing code and solving problems. And so the kinds of solutions that you see from different language communities, I think, vary incredibly. Like, I don't know, even just as simple as from, like, J2EE, <laughs> which is, you know, the, the ivory tower of purity in XML. <laughs> uh, to... Uh, Obviously, like, you know, 
I don't want to pick on Rails, but Rails is an open system. <laughs> An interpretive dance, perhaps. And, you know, it's, I think it's really interesting. Like the web frameworks, even I see in, in like Haskell, almost feel like I'm solving a math problem more than I'm, you know, creating an API or, you know, delivering content to somebody. So it's, uh, it's hard for me to separate, like, is this a community of thought of people who are attracted to a certain way of solving problems? Is this driven by the structure and format of the language? I don't know. You mentioned the Sapir Whorf hypothesis, and and their research has been shown to be problematic. Yeah, <laughs> but, for sure. But I will say that you know the the hypothesis is that language shapes thought, and I would say that the correct state, the correct <laughs> a better description for me is that language is thought, and so the language you use is the you know the sort of things you're thinking about. So when you say if you say inject when you mean collect like those are those are different things you're going to get different things out of them this is why we use git annotate instead of git blame <laughs> for sure exactly and, you know it's also um so at aws this is big drive uh, and i i'm not speaking for aws on this i'm just speaking for me but i'm noticing this is this is drive for inclusive language and i think it's really beautiful and i connecting that drive frankly in the broader tech community to everything that's been going on in this last year, in how we interact with each other as humans from different backgrounds, et cetera. It's like, what kinds of dominant culture paradigms have we baked into our code beyond even the very obviously problematic statements, but just like the way that we think about, I don't know, like part of me is like, well, is object-oriented design like driven by certain cultural expectations that we have or, or functional? I don't know. Like what paradigms would we get if we'd have had a different dominant culture developing Technology. I don't know. It's fascinating. Yeah, an excellent Rubicop is an excellent example of that. It's a punishment. Yeah, this is wrong. I did a whole talk uh, several years ago about specifications versus tests. You know, I don't, <laughs> I don't want you to write tests for your code. Tests are something you do afterwards to see if something is suitable. Write a specification, and then if, if the spec code and the specification don't match, well, one of them needs to change. <laughs> That's right. I love that. You know, it, that's also kind of like the the pact, like the contract testing space. It's like, a, I like this framework because it allows a consumer of an API to say, this is what I expect you to do. Uh, and then the API almost has to comply. And that whenever I've talked about pact, I think with a lot of developers, they're like, wait, what? That doesn't make any sense at all. <laughs> I'm like, well, no. I mean, in a way, it's like the API is like, prerogative to deliver what the customer expects and and to be like always right you know the customer is right here in this case and i think it's a really great way to to look at this differently that should totally be the tagline for pact the consumer is always right <laughs> i love it <laughs> another way language shapes things i noticed lately is valheim is a super popular game where you're a viking and building houses there's a, totally a command you can type called i'm a cheater that lets you like spawn in equipment and building materials. And on all the forums online, people are harassing each other for doing their own creative mode for spawning stuff in because of that language, I suspect. So in a recent patch, they changed it from I'm a cheater to dev tools or something like that. And the forums have rebranded. Re There's like new moderators posting things. And the culture is completely changing because the devs changed that one word in a changelog. And it's just so cool to see. Language matters. That's amazing. That is so cool. You know, I actually, I, I'm totally hooked on Valheim also, along with probably everybody else. I have my own little server with some friends, and 
Anyway, we noticed on the Valheim subreddit, there was uh, somebody who sort of redid the loading screen. And they uh, really hypersexualized the female character in the painting and uh, actually got a surprising amount of feedback, like saying, please don't do that. Like, we love Valheim because it's not like clearly gendered or particularly one way or the other. And the artist actually took that feedback to heart and put together a much better like version of the thing where the woman was like very well armored and looked ready for battle. And it was really cool. So it's like, you know, I, I've been thinking about like the whole tech community and there's, there's so many connections to the gamer community as well. And ever since like Gamergate, I think we've been putting a really hard light on this whole world and it's just so heartwarming and incredible to know that like this you know viking destroying trolls game <laughs> has people who actually care enough to say no like let's pay attention to what that woman's wearing <laughs> make sure she wears something that's actually like reasonable that's cool we've come a long way i mean nope not perfect but it's a long way yeah a long way i always think about progress in terms of people in four groups there's like people who are vocally for something like they would speak up in this case, people who are vocally against it, and then quiet people who are for or against it. And we can see the vocal people who are supporting this now. And I just, I love to think about how many people are moving in that direction who are quiet, we can't see. That's like the big cultural shift under the covers. Yeah, that's a big question. You know, that makes me think about, like when I was a, when I was at Uptoro, we were trying to understand our employee engagement. And so we used this tool called Tramp, which I imagine a lot of people have seen. And we did a survey and we got all this data and it's like, hey, everybody's really engaged. Maybe there's a couple minor things we can fix. But then, you know, we were talking to some of our black employees and those of you who can't see me, I'm white. <laughs> and uh, there was just a lot of like, wow, this doesn't represent us. Like, what are you doing? Like, we actually aren't, don't feel like this is a really great representation. We're like, what the data says, everything's fine. So what we actually did is the next survey we ran, we included demographic data in the data set, and we then were able to distribute the data across racial demographics. And we saw, oh, no, our black employees are pretty much all pissed off. (laughs) Uh, Like, we've done a really bad job of including them. I mean, for a lot of reasons. Like, for example, we had a warehouse, and, like, most of our black employees worked in the warehouse. And it turns out that we had a very corporate-based culture, and we didn't pay enough attention, and we didn't really engage everybody. And uh, the fact that they were basically all in the warehouse is kind of also a problem too. And like, so there was a lot of really great eye-opening things that we got to see by paying attention to that and sort of looking, not not just at our black employees, but all, all our different demographics. And we learned a lot. And I think we had a real humbling moment and got to listen. But it's really this quiet or either people who don't use their voice or can't use their voice or maybe don't know how to use their voice in a lot of different ways. Like these people, I think, make such an incredible impact on the true sort of feeling of a place, of a community, of a company, and like really sitting down and listening to those people, I think could be really hard in in any position. So I was really happy we were able to do that. But I think you're totally right, Casey, that there's like, it's not just moving the vocal people to like really change the Overton window, I suppose, on what's acceptable in a community. But it's fundamentally like, how do you change like the people who you aren't hearing from? How do you frankly even know Yeah, it's a big question. There's no easy answer. There's a lot of approaches. I'm glad people are talking about that in the meta sense. That's huge. We want to do this as a community, but there's work to be done. And then even once people are comfortable expressing their point of view, there are then further tiers we're going to have to go through, like that other people around them 
understand and they're actively listening and they like internalize it. And then beyond that, actually acting on it. Um, I've had experiences at work where I'm usually like very confident. I'll say my point of view, regardless of the context. Uh, I like being outspoken like that and represent quieter people. But often like leadership and other people around me don't understand. Or even if they do, they don't incorporate that into the plan. And then everybody is still very frustrated, maybe even more so in a way because it's light is shining on this problem. Uh, and that's the same for uh, marginalized voices. If they can just be heard, that's great. But we have to go farther than that, too. I couldn't agree more. This is a thing that I, sh I struggle with sometimes. You know, I, I love people. I'm very extroverted. I'm very gregarious. <laughs> As I imagine you could tell. Uh, and I like to engage with people and I try to listen, but I find that sometimes I have a big personality and that can be tough. <laughs> I think sometimes. So like I super value people like you, Casey, for example, who I think are much better listeners <laughs> and are willing to represent that. So that's, that's huge. I also though, on the flip side, you know, I'm, I, I know that I can kind of use that loudness to help represent at least one aspect of marginalized people. Like I'm trans and I'm super loud about that. And uh, I'm very happy to make all kinds of noise and say, don't forget about trans rights, you know? <laughs> and, and frankly, I think it's kind of a wedge into like, you know, I, uh, I'm one kind of marginalized community. I represent one kind of marginalized community, but there's a lot more and let's talk about that too. So I mean, not to toot my horn, but like, I think it, th those of us who are loud have a responsibility to use our loudness in a way that I think supports people and uh, also to listen when we can. Can we explore a bit into the, uh, into the meta problem of, of hearing from marginalized voices? You know, I'm a, I'm an engineer at heart and, and first and foremost. And so I like, like, how do we solve, how do we solve this meta problem? Like you gave a great example with the survey separated by demographics, knowing that racial and gender demographics are, are well, finding out <laughs> that racial and dem gender demographics were important factors in your thing. But how, like, how do we, how do we solve this on a broader issue? I don't know. No, that's a great question. I think we have so much calcified thinking that like in every organization and every place in the world, there's so much like, well, this is the way we've done things. And, and and frankly, it's not even this is the way we've done things. It's just this is the way it works, you know, and this is what we do. And just thinking outside the box, you know, <laughs> it, I think it's hard. Uh, like finding these areas that we are being blind to in the first place, I think takes a certain amount of just metacognition and patience and self-reflection. And that's, I mean, very difficult to do, I think, for any human. But driving that shows like this, for example, like making sure that people care and think about these kinds of problems and maybe take a second, like you as a listener, I'm going to challenge you for a second, take a minute at the end of this podcast and think about like, what am I not thinking about? I don't know. It's a really freaking hard question, but maybe you might find something, but you know, it's, it's politicians, it's media, it's our leaders in every aspect, like making sure that we shine a light on something that is different something that is marginalized, I think is, is incredibly valuable. That's the first step, but then playing that through everything else we do, that's hard. You know, I, I think it falls on leaders in every realm that we have, like community leaders, conference organizers, people who lead major open source projects. I mean, like making sure that people say, you know, I believe that black lives matter. You know, I believe that we should stand against violence against the Asian community. Like those I think are powerful statements and saying, you know, Hey, have we 
heard from somebody that doesn't look like us lately, who doesn't come from our same, you know, socioeconomic educational background. It's tough. I mean, I grew up, uh, you know, I had food, but I grew up relatively poor. And I think even that is such a huge difference of experience and background to a lot of people that I end up working with. And I've been able to talk about like, how are we setting prices? Well, you know, who are we actually thinking about? We're not thinking about ourselves here. We're thinking about a different market. Let's make sure we talk to those people. Let's make sure we talk to our customers and make sure this actually works for them. I was really proud to, uh, at Aptoro, we built a new brand called Bulk, where uh, we took, so Aptoro, two seconds on Aptoro, we took returns and excess goods from major retailers and helped them get more value out of it. And a lot of the time, you know, we built great classification systems to say, oh, well, this is a, a belt and I know how to price belts because I can look on eBay and Amazon and determine, et cetera. But a lot of the times we couldn't build these kind of models like uh, auto parts, for example, and were notoriously difficult for us. Uh, so we could say, oh, this is an auto part, but like, I don't know, carburetor, manifold, who knows? <laughs> but we were, so we were able to like classify them as auto parts. And then we put them into these uh, cases, you know, maybe like three foot square, you know, large boxes. And then we were able to sell those in lots to um, basically individual people who uh, had time to learn what they were and then could resell them. So like a story that I love to tell here is like they're uh, laid off auto factory worker knows a ton about auto parts and can probably, you know, scrounge up enough money to afford like this two to $300 box uh, brings it to their house, knows exactly what these parts are, knows exactly what the value is and then can resell them for like three to five X on what this person bought them for. And like that, I was so proud to be able to have created this kind of entrepreneurial opportunity for people that we would otherwise often forget about because so much of tech, I think, is focused on on us. So, you know, it's an interesting thing kind of being at AWS, which is very much a tech for tech company. You know, I love it. Don't get me wrong. But sometimes I think these opportunities to listen to the rest of the world, I think, are, are we miss out on. Yeah, you said um, you asked the question, you challenged uh, us to, to ask ourselves the question, what are we not thinking about? Like, and that that level of metacognition sounds impossible. It might be impossible. It's close to impossible if it's not. So I can't I can't help but think like the only way to really to really get that knowledge that insight is to get people who are different from you, who have different backgrounds, who have different life experiences. You got a great example with someone who knows a lot about car parts. <laughs> like bring them in. They have they have years of experience in car parts and they, they can, they can do this stuff that, that you can't do. Uh, but then also like along every, along every axis, if you look around, if you look around the leadership and go, Oh, there's nobody in leadership here who has this type of experience, that knowledge, that insight and people like that are not going to be served because it's impossible for them. They don't even know. They can't know. Could not agree more. And it is, it is leadership. Absolutely. That you're absolutely right. Like, so many times, you know, I've seen having been a leader, like you get into, ultimately you end up in a room with other leaders and you end up making decisions. And if you don't have other voices in there, if you don't have diverse voices, uh, you don't get that benefit. Even if you've gone to the trouble of paying attention to diverse voices beforehand, there's always some data, some argument that comes up and it's like, oh, well, you know, maybe, maybe not. And uh, yeah, I, I cannot agree enough. And this is the other sort of flip side of that is that as a business leader, I have to think about prioritizing the, the outcomes of the business. It is a sort of a fact of my position. And 
I like to think that I work in a lot more data to what that means than other business leaders, perhaps like impact on the community, <laughs> impact on the people. But a lot of times we'll be having these discussions about who to hire and like maybe we'll have done a really great job. And, and this isn't specific to any particular company that I'm talking about, but, uh, but I know that this kind of thing happens. Like maybe we'll have done a really great job of getting a diverse pipeline and having talked to a bunch of different kinds of candidates. But when it comes down to it, we're trying to make a, often like the lowest risk decision on who to hire. And so often, like, we are so too risk averse to somebody whose background doesn't quite line up to what we're expecting or to what we think we need. And, you know, I like to think that I push hiring communities in conversations like that. I say, like, look, let's, let's think beyond what's risky here and, and factor in more of these aspects to the conversation of, like, getting diverse voices. But too often, it's very easy, I think, for leaders to think, well, we're just going to hire the known quantity. And I think that is a major sort of just, again, on the meta, a major thing that we need to fix. Like there's so much more to being an effective leader than having the standard pedigree. Well, there's also like you mentioned the risk aversion to not want to hire somebody who's not like all the other people. But then what are the huge risks of having only people who are alike in certain aspects? Exactly. Could not agree more. I mean, like. I think there's tons of examples. Like if we Googled right now, like we'd find like companies have made really dumb mistakes because they didn't have somebody in the room who could be like that. You know, the first one that comes to mind is the Chevy Nova tried to sell that in, you know, Spanish speaking <laughs> countries. Doesn't go, not going anywhere. <laughs> I mean, like that could have been avoided, right? <laughs> Nova. Nova. <laughs> but, you know, it, that, that might be a trivializing one, but there's been a lot worse. And that's a major business risk. So, you know, I, and I think those arguments carry some weight. And I think, you know, I love that so many organizations are prioritizing hiring more diverse leaders, especially. But there's a deep pattern that we've gotten into. So, like, that actually comes to mind when you're thinking about how to change your mental patterns. Like, I'm an improviser. I'm all about trying to change my ment mental patterns all the time <laughs> so that I can try to be creative. Obviously, there's plenty of silly improv games that you get into, but something that's simple, I think, that anybody can do is walk it, like, go for a walk and take a different path. Just turn a different way than how you used to. Like, we humans love to get into patterns, especially engineers, which I find to be highly ironic. Engineers are all about creating change, but don't like change themselves typically. <laughs> but, like, do something a little different. You know, turn left instead of right today, look up instead of down. I mean, those, I think, subtle, physical changes really do influence or influence our mental states. And I think that can actually lead us to thinking in new ways. I love it. That's very actionable. I've been doing a lot of walks and hikes, and I actually try to go to a different hiking location each time because of that. I think about that idea all the time, take a different path. And it, it is great. Every time I do it, I feel amazing. My, I don't know, more flexible. I think differently. Yeah. Try it listeners. I dare you. I love it. I'm sure there are papers written showing that having diverse teams have very measured effects, a whole bunch of them, more than I know, more than I've read. The data, well, I guess, first of all, I don't know that the data has been collected in a single spot I can point people to, and that would be pretty powerful. Uh, but then secondly, if even if we had that, I'm not sure that's enough to change minds at companies in any widespread way. It might just help some people who already care, like, say their message very clearly. Do you know of anything like that, Jess or Damien, either of you? Like, what's the one resource you would send to someone who wants to be equipped with 
diversity and inclusion data. Yeah, um, there's a, a study McKinsey did a while ago that I think gets a lot of traction here, where they demonstrated uh, the companies have better total performance with more diverse groups of people, and went into some depth with data. And I think it's a fantastic study. It's definitely one that I reference often. I've used it to change minds among people who are like, well, you know, what's it really matter? No, I've got data. <laughs> I know, like, uh, I can see Casey here on video, and Casey's mouth just went open. <laughs> And it's like, yes, no, it's, that's real. This is like, you know, no shade on the people I've worked with. I I love them. But like, this is such a thing. Like there are cynics in corporate leadership who want to focus on profit. And sometimes you have to make a cynical argument in business and a cynical argument can come down to data. And this data says, no, look, if we get more people in here who look different from us, we're going to make more money. And that's good for you and your bottom line. So sometimes you have to walk the argument back to that, even if it feels gross, and it does. It's like, no, this actually matters to your bottom line. I like, and that's a great argument, and it's a positive argument. And my view of corporations, I feel like the larger they get, the more you have an agency problem where people aren't looking to take risks to get the positive benefit. They're going to do things to avoid backlash and negative things. So I think uh, I think larger company, more middle management, more more people you're answerable to, especially on the short term, the more people are better motivated by fear. <laughs> and so for that, for that I want I want to pull out like what are what are the risks of homogeneity? And you mentioned, oh good, you mentioned the Nova. You mentioned like, oh, there was <laughs> I pull this out far too often. There was an AI image classifier that classified black people as gorillas. There was a store, oh goodness, I think it was an Apple store. Beautiful, beautiful architecture. Glass everywhere, including the stairs. <laughs> these are all these are all the harms that come from homogeneity. <laughs> what was the expense of fixing those st- stairs? It couldn't have been cheap. <laughs> oh my gosh. And I don't even wear skirts that often. <laughs> but and I know it's a problem because <laughs> Because when I heard that story, I was multiple paragraphs in before I realized the problem. <laughs> I wear squirts less than you, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. You know, I think those stories are really important for us to be able to tell and to share with each other because, like, diversity matters. And I think it's easy to say that, and especially among people who care people who prioritize it, like we almost take it as like a, well, of course, but I think there is still kind of getting back to that quiet group of people who don't say what they actually think. There's a lot of people who are on the fence or maybe frankly disagree. And uh, it's like, well, you know, you can disagree and I respect your disagreement, but here's the data. Here's the results. Here's the impact. Let's talk about that. Do you have a better way to handle this? Cause I don't. <laughs> So I, I think the risk is especially acute in tech companies and in tech for tech companies, uh, where where things are far more homogeneous. Next week, I know how to pronounce these words. <laughs> so what can we do? Uh, like, are there is there anything special that we can do in, in those sort of environments? Yeah. Well, I mean, besides have the conversation, which I think is something we can all do, like... 
not to fangirl too much about Amazon, but I really do like the company and I'm really uh, enjoying my experience. And a lot of it comes down to how we've expressed our leadership principles. You know, we say this is our culture and our values and we actually apply it constantly. Like if you ever come to talk to an Amazon person, I'm going to tell you about how I've disagreed and committed and what I'm doing to think big and how I'm customer obsessed. Like I'm, I'm going to talk about those things directly. And, you know, to this, we, we say one of our leadership principles is that leaders are right a lot. And that feels weird, Right. Leaders are right a lot. Oh, I've just happened to know everything. No, that's not what that means. <laughs> we actually go into it more in more depth. And it's like leaders look to disconfirm their beliefs and seek diverse perspectives. And we bake that right into one of our core cultural values. And I think that that is absolutely critical to our ability to serve the broader tech community effectively. Like the fact that we hold leaders to being right through having gone through a crucible of finding out how they're wrong I think is is magical. And I think that's actually something that a lot more companies could think to do. It's like, you know, you as a tech person and you think, oh, I'm going to go sell this great new widget to all of my tech buddies. Okay, you might be right. But like, how how could you make that bigger? How could you make that better? Like, go try to find out how you're wrong. That should be something we value everywhere. It's like, no, I'm, I'm probably wrong. I want to be right. So the way to get right is to find out every way I'm wrong. And that means talk to everybody you can and find out. From our conversation here, I'm picking up a couple of tools we have to help persuade people to get them to be louder or more proactive, at least. Data is one. Telling stories, like from other companies, is another one. And then here I'm picking up, get your own stories that you can really tell from your point of view. And that's maybe the strongest of the three, really. Because it changes you, too. I love that idea. Yeah, we had a, an internal conference this week, uh, the networking summit, and there was a great session last night from somebody talking about what customers love and what customers hate about our products. And he was just telling story after story about customers saying, oh, I'm so frustrated by this. I would love to change that. Those stories, I think, have so much more weight in our minds. You know, we humans are evolved to tell stories to each other. So, like, if we have stories to tell, like, I think those are so much like they connect at a deeper level almost, I think. And they help us think about like, you know, not just sort of that top of brain logical, like almost like engineering, like binary yes, no, you know, but it's more like this deeper sort of like heart level. Like I understand the story that led to this position. I understand the human that feels this way. Personally, I think no matter how logical we think we are, (laughs) we're still walking bags of meat. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and there's a lot to be said to respect that and to connect with that. So yeah, storytelling is huge. You brought up uh, earlier in our conversation about how things might be different with a different cultural paradigm. This is an enormous example of this white Western culture values logic and objectivity among over overvalues logic and objectivity. It, it's, it's a, byproducts of culture and there's a there's a conflation between objectivity and rationality and rightness weirdly enough in my experience that makes people less able to be rational and objective (laughs) it's quite amazing ironic and tragic but if you follow the science and you follow the logic you follow the rationality uh, what you'll discover is that humans are not naturally logical rational beings We are not rational beings that feel. We are feeling beings that rationalize. And 
from the beginning, from the birth of humans as a species, stories and communication have been how we navigate the world, how we see the world, how our beliefs and behaviors change. And you can see that throughout all of history, and it's the narratives that change everything. And so that's something that is super important to have, to know, and especially if you want to be effective. Having grown up in this culture, though, it amuses me to no end how little I use that knowledge. (laughs) I argue with logic and facts and wonder why people don't understand when I have all the logic and facts that tell me that (laughs) that's not going to change what they do. Oh, yeah. Honestly, like, I think our our political climate right now is representative of that because it's like, I don't know, I feel like it's so logical and factual, like my political perspectives. And then I'll talk to somebody else and they feel the exact same way. And, uh, you know, having been in media, like, I've seen, like, a lot of, like, what we end up believing is kind of like how we've sold it to ourselves and the stories that we've told around it and, like, what we've paid attention to, what we've listened to. It's, it's so easy to develop this, like, cognitive filter on stories that don't line up to your expectations. Like, so it's a, I don't know, like this is, I think an area that engineers like really overlook time and time again is the power of media and the power of the stories that we tell, like being a trans person. Like I didn't come out until I was in my late thirties because the stories I grew up with of trans people were stories of serial killers and rapists and murderers and people who were at the very edges of society. And like, I'm like, Oh, I'm not that. I can't be trans. (laughs) And, you know, it wasn't until we had these new stories of like love or hate, you know, Caitlyn Jenner, I think set a new story on the world. And like a lot of things changed around then where we were able to see ourselves in a light that wasn't just pain. And I think that we've seen a lot more trans people come out because they're able to see themselves in these happier stories and better stories. So uh, we need more stories like that. I mean, like Pose, I think, is amazing and great stories of standing up in a hard place and, you know, owning your power even under all this adversity. I think it's incredible. Like, those set of stories, I think, are just so incredible for everybody. And, like, we just just need so much more. I could rant for a while. (laughs) Yeah, I'm totally on board with this as a queer man. I wasn't comfortable for a lot of my life being that because of the representation. I know I'm not into drag, but that's not a requirement. <laughs> a friend of mine just shared a list of children's books that are incidentally queer. And I just think that's so cool. The phrase even. They're like just regular storybooks, not about being queer as a topic, but just like people doing normal stuff that happen to have in- including queer characters. I love that. The world is changing. Yes. And I think we have a responsibility to be a part of that storytelling. Like, let's tell stories. And it doesn't have to be a big deal that the person you're talking about is a female engineer. No, she just happens to be an engineer. Let's tell stories where, you know, he has a husband. Who cares? He has a husband. It's great. It's not the focus of the story. It's just a part of the the whole, the milieu that we're in. That's really, really important. So, yeah, like, I think a lot of normalizing, a lot of... A lot of acceptance comes through normalization. Like, and it's honestly, it's so complicated because, like, there's this tendency to, to whitewash, like, when you go into this sort of normalizing place of, like, uh, like, oh, I don't see skin tone. No, that's not, I think that's not the way to do it. I think it's like there are differences in us and our backgrounds and our cultures and our experiences, and that is incredible and that is wonderful. And it's not the story, 
but it's a part of the story and that's an important part. Yeah. As a black man, I've definitely seen this. I, I like to say black Panther was the best thing that happened to African-Americans in the history of, of cinema. Get out. is another example. Like it's, it's, you know, it's very, it's very much about the black experience, but it's not the old story of, of what being black in America is like. And so it's, it's very different. Definitely. Yeah. All right. We're getting near the end of time we have today. Uh, let's shift gears into what we normally do at the end, our reflections. What's something that you're going to take away from this conversation? Jess or Damien, who wants to go first? I'll start because uh, I already wrote it down here. Damien, you said we are feeling beings that rationalize. That is going to stick with me. That was profound. I love that. Like, And it's so obvious, I think, but I'd never thought to think of it that way or to say it that way. So I got I to gotta think about that one for a while, but that's, I think, really going to stick with me. Thank you. Thank you, Jess. That, that's quite an honor. I, and I can <laughs> and I can drag out like probably a half dozen off the top of my head or a dozen probably store of scientific studies that show that it's <laughs> I never get enough of them, mostly because they also, you know, I, I've been rationalizing more. Anyway, I, my reflection is, is really on how technology impacts culture, both within the technologists and how that relates how that relates to storytelling and communication and language and all those things are all those things are creating culture and all those things exist in technology and between technologists and, and that's how we can we can make our our culture something i want it to be or more like something i want it to be so thank you that's awesome i think uh my takeaway is i'm noticing that i said i'm very loud and outspoken about a lot of stuff and I care a lot about diversity, equity, and inclusion, especially when I'm in groups of people talking about it. I talk about that all the time. But can I and how can I take that loudness for diversity, equity, and inclusion with people who don't always talk about it? Who can I approach and how can I tell who is more open to it or not? That's always a big open question for me. Uh, I guess I'll be thinking about that, especially this week. Well, this is a pleasure. Thank you for having me. This was great. Jess, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, it was delightful. I suppose this might be a good time to plug our Slack community, which is available to all patrons for the podcasts and also uh, all of our all of our guests. So, Jess, if you want to join us there and we can we can nerd out some more. I'll keep throwing you instruments to, to try and stump you. <laughs> yes, bring it on. <laughs>